0: Confession, full transparency. Once again, your worship guide has lied to you um, because I am not Pastor Tyler and I'm not preaching on Ephesians 5 and the importance of wives. Uh, That will be next week. Unfortunately, Pastor Tyler is a little bit under the weather, so he reached out to me yesterday and he said, Man, I just don't think I'm going to make it. Uh, His wife is ill as well, so if you would just remember to be praying for their family. But he asked me if I would step in and I said I would be more than happy to always enjoy an opportunity to preach the Word of God. So, as you know, if you've been here the last few weeks, we've been going through a series on God's design for the family. Um, we're going to take kind of a break from that. I say kind of because I think the, what I preach on today, the topic that we discuss today, is really a natural bridge between these two sections, right? I think it helps us really to understand God's design for the family. So what we're going to talk about today is who is God? And I think that really informs us of how to be godly husbands and wives, how to be men and women, helps us understand sexuality, gender, identity, all of these other issues that pertain to life flow through us having an appropriate understanding of who God is. So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Now, I don't necessarily have what we'll call an anchor text where I'll spend all of our time. We're going to be looking at a lot of different texts this morning, but at least this is where we will begin in Genesis chapter 1. So you can just kind of keep your finger there. Um, I want to pray, ask God to bless our time, and then I'll begin. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, that you've graciously given this day to us. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity Uh, that we have to fellowship together, to come together and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, I just pray that you would indeed bless our time, that your spirit would be at work in this place, in each of us, through the preaching and teaching of your word. Lord, would we uh, be able to have an appropriate understanding of who you are? Help us to see you in all of your glory, and that by seeing you, we would respond accordingly. We would live the right way according to your word, in light of gospel truth, for your glory, for our good. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, has anybody in here ever been lost, like traveling down the road and gotten lost? I know that's happened to me many, many times. I recall one time I was supposed to be flying to Orlando years ago. I think I was 20 years old, and I was supposed to be flying out of Richmond, but they didn't really have these things called GPSs back then. I know they're super convenient, really nice to have. At the time, we didn't have those. So I'm riding with a buddy of mine from college, and we couldn't figure out how to get to this airport. We were lost. We were turned around. You know, back in that day, one of the things, though, that you could do is you could print out the directions from Google. Does anybody ever remember doing that? And you would put in, hey, this is my starting point, and this is where I'm planning to go, right? And you would print it out, and you would try to follow those directions. Well, in our situation, we didn't even bother to do that. We just thought we knew where we were going, and we had gotten very, very lost. So without knowing where we were, we had no idea really where to go, and we honestly had no idea where to even begin. We were so lost. And the reality is that life is a lot like that as well. It can be so chaotic, so hectic, so overwhelming that we don't even know where to begin or what to do. The unfortunate reality is that there are a lot of people on this planet that are very, very lost and they don't realize it. They have nowhere to, no idea where to go because they don't have that appropriate starting point. You see, everything must begin with one fundamental, undeniable reality, and that is God. You see, God is the one thing that is constant, that is Assured that is unchanging. He's this all-consuming, unavoidable truth. See, God is where we must start, but God is also where we must finish. Amen? Yeah. See, but the thing is, we must view God in the appropriate light. We need to know exactly who God is. We need to know what God is like. We need to know what God demands of us. So then the question would become, well, who is God? Who or What is God? I want you right where you're sitting this morning to just ponder on that for a second. You don't have to say anything out loud, I'm not asking for any audible responses, but just think for a second, who is God? You know, if I were to take a survey of 100 people at random and I stopped them on the street and I asked them that very question, who is God? I would probably get a variety of responses. I'd get a lot of different answers. You see, people have their understanding of God. It's been informed by a lot of different sources. People get their belief about God from a lot of different places. But if we truly want to know who God is, the place to go is to his word. God has revealed himself to us through his word. So we must have a biblically faithful understanding of who God is. But see, I believe this is where so many people go astray rather than having a biblical understanding of God. They've fashioned a God for themselves, one of their own creations. See, a lot of people, if you ask them, they'll say, yes, I believe in God. I do believe that God exists, but it is not the God of the Bible that they are following. You see, God has given us this book again to reveal himself to us and to instruct us on how we are to live the right way in the world that he has created. See, if we continue with our analogy, the illustration I made earlier about being lost, see, this is what guides us when we are lost. This is what gives us direction. This is our guidepost, the word of God. This is where we must go to find our way to find direction. We must begin first and foremost by knowing who God is. See, if we have an accurate understanding of him and that is our starting point, then that informs everything else that we do. You see, that's essential for determining how we live our lives, having the right view of god so again in the middle of this series as we talk about the design for marriage if we understand god rightly we'll understand marriage li- rightly we'll understand the family rightly how to be men women husbands wives children parents and so on and so forth again it starts with having the appropriate view of the lord having a right theology of god so this morning What I wanna do is just discuss a few attributes about God. I have four simple points about God that I wanna make this morning. Number one, God is the great creator. God is the creator. Number two, God is holy. God is holy. Number three, God is the righteous judge. God is the judge and number four and this is the good news God is the, also the Redeemer God is the Savior and Redeemer now listen this is gonna be a brief discussion and I know some of you as we kind of walk through this text or this time together you may say man there are a lot of other attributes about God I wish Pastor Brandon would have talked about look I'm, I only get a few minutes so you may leave dissatisfied today and say man I wish you really would have covered that Look, I'd be more than happy to continue this conversation with you over lunch or coffee or whatever, as long as you're buying. We can continue to talk, right? All right. So just four points for a few minutes, if you would. We'll start. Number one, God is the creator. So again, I asked you to turn to Genesis chapter one, and I'm going to read verse one. And it says this, in the beginning, God created. Now, let's just stop right there. Because if you don't believe that, nothing else you read in this book will matter, right? In the beginning, God created, it says, the heavens and the earth. It says that God, uh, Genesis 1 will go on to tell us what else God created, but just for the time being, I want to focus on the phrase, in the beginning. You see, this is referring to the origins of the universe, the beginning of space and time. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, Right? I want you to think about this just for a minute. The fact that there was a beginning to the space and time matter that we have, it had to be something outside of space and time that created it. It couldn't be something that was bound to material limitations. You see, God is what we call the uncaused cause. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me so far? I don't want this to get too complicated and become a lecture on chemistry, Right? But God is what we call the uncaused cause. He is eternal. See, God has always existed. He has no beginning and no end. We're even reminded of this reality if we go to John chapter 1 when John writes his prologue and he's writing about Jesus Christ, who he calls the Word. And he says in John 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word. You see, again, this reminds us of the pre existent nature of our triune God. Psalms 90, verse 2 says this Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Again, this reminds us of the eternal nature of this great creator. Even in Ephesians 1, it tells us, uh, again, of God's etern- eternality, I should say because it points to this plan of salvation. Ephesians 1, 4 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So if God had this plan to save before the foundations of the world, that means God must have existed before the foundations of the world. Again, this is simple logic here. So if we understand that God is this eternal, preexistent being, and he's not limited by the physical, he's not hampered by time and space and molecules and atoms, because he's the great creator of all of these things, and he's the sovereign authority over them all. You see, verse 1, the very beginning of your Bible here in the book of Genesis tells us that God created the heavens. And the earth. And then it goes on to tell us that He creates the light and He separates the light from the darkness. And the light He calls day and the darkness He calls night. And then it goes on to tell us that He creates the oceans to cover the earth and that He creates every animal the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all the animals that crawl across the land. It's all been created by this divine, eternal creator that we call God. And then when we get to the end of Genesis 1, it tells us that after God creates everything, Genesis 1:31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's important. Because God's not just a creator, he's a good creator. He's an, a perfectly good creator. The way he's designed all things to be are perfection according to his divine plan. See, Genesis 1 tells us that God is responsible for this beautiful landscape that we call nature, but it also reminds us that God created something else. God created something special, something unique. See, Genesis 1 also tells us that God is the creator of humanity, that he's the one who has given us life. Let's look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. he created them and God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I want you to notice something. I don't want you to miss this. You see, the text tells us that God has created us how? In his own image. That means he's made you in his Now, I want to be clear. That does not mean you are a God or that you can do the same things that God does. Now, God has given us some of what we call his communicable attributes. We are able to love just as God is able to love. We're able to forgive. We're able to exercise mercy, grace, reason, all of these things that God also does, just not to the perfect level that he does them. But see, even the command that God gives to the man and the woman here to have dominion, or excuse me, I should say that he gives to have dominion here, demonstrates something of the image of God. However, again, it's important to note you are not a God, neither am I. All right? We are not gods. We are simply made in the image of God. Now, why is that significant? Because this gives you your divinely appointed purpose. This is the reason that you live. This is the reason that God's created you. Your life is to be lived for the glory of your creator. You see, God has made mankind for a specific purpose. And since God has given us life and we are his, he has the right. Now, I want you to don't miss this. Since God's created us for a purpose, he has the right to dictate what is good, what is right, what is true and what is not you see this is where the rubber really meets the road this is where we get down to the foundation of our conversation and why it is so important that we accurately understand who God is because it's inevitably going to impact the way that we live see God is the author of life He's the creator of all things, the eternal God of the universe. He's the highest authority. I know some people hear that, and that's a bitter pill to swallow, especially because we're people who want autonomy, right? We want to govern ourselves. We want to determine what's best for us, right? We want to lead ourselves. If you don't believe that, just have some children, (laughs) right? Now, as much as I want to indict and rebuke my children, that's me too, right? I want to lead me. I want to be in charge. I want to determine what's right and what's good and what's true for me. But God's the creator. We're his design, his creation, the work of his hand. So he determines what's right. You see, when you acknowledge God as the creator and you understand his authority, it should move you to a place of of devotion and obedience to him. Hopefully, when you understand that God's created you, you see him and his word as good. And you want to commit yourself to that. You understand it to be life-giving. You understand God to be a blessing to you. See, everything changes when we understand God as the creator, when that's our starting point. You realize you're not here by accident. You're not a product of chance. God's created you intentionally. That means your life matters. As an image bearer, your life has great meaning, great value, great purpose. So Maybe that's something you're wrestling with this morning. The idea of purpose. A lot of people wrestle with this question, man, what is... The meaning of life what is my purpose for being on this planet maybe you believe your purpose is simply to achieve all of the goals that you've set for yourself to live your dreams maybe your goal is to be a husband or to be a wife to have children maybe your goal is to be as successful in your vocation maybe your goal is to be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be And those are all good things. They're not necessarily sinful. But if you've reduced the meaning of life to that, if you've reduced your purpose to working 50 years, accumulating all you can, and then retiring and traveling the world, I believe the book of Ecclesiastes has something to say about that. And it calls it meaningless. Meaningless apart from God. Because that's not your purpose. See, being successful at your vocation, getting married, starting a family, all of those things are great, but none of those are the reason that God has graciously gifted you life. God's created you for his glory. That is the goal of all of creation, is to demonstrate the glory of God. That is our purpose. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7 says this, thus says the Lord, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created. Why? For my glory. Or Psalm 19:1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So we are reminded that we as humanity and even the creation that we see that we call nature is all for God's glory. He's made it all for him. See, even in Romans 1, Paul writes about creation and how it demonstrates the glory of God and how, as human beings, we really should be able to acknowledge God, and we have no excuse. But as human beings, what we've done is we've elevated the creation above the creator. We've exchanged the glory of God for the things that he's made. We ignore our great creator, and we'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. But for now, we must understand that God is the creator. He's the supreme divine being that has brought all things to be. There's nothing that's been created, not one molecule, not one atom, not one cell that hasn't been made by God for his glory and is under his authority. So number one, God is the creator. Number two, God is holy. Now that's a word we hear attributed to God quite a bit, but what does that actually mean? mean. When we say that God is holy, that means that God is perfect. He is sinless. He is set apart. See, God is totally different from anything and anyone in all of existence. You see, the holiness of God really refers to his otherness, right? There's nothing else that you can compare God to. Honestly, the holiness of God can be a very difficult concept to wrap our minds around because it's, it's so outside of us. Thinking about God being holy, he is and we aren't. So it's hard to really even fathom what that means. But when we think about God being holy, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, it, it really essentially speaks to his otherness, how he is set apart, how he is different. He's not like anything or anyone. See, the holiness of God is one of his main attributes, one of his main characteristics that we're consistently met with in the pages of Scripture. Over and over again, we see this overwhelming holiness of God. If you recall in the Old Testament, God had brought the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and then he gives them Moses as as their leader, right, he leads them, and they're in the wilderness, and they're lost, and they rebel against God, and If you get to Exodus 33, we have this encounter. See, Moses is acting as this almost intermediary between God and between the people. He'll go and meet with God, and then he'll go back to the people and tell them this is what God has said, and that's the kind of relationship Moses and God had. And then in Exodus 33, Moses is speaking with God, and he asks the Lord if he can see his glory. Turn with me to Exodus 33. We'll look at verses 19 through 23. This is an incredible encounter. That, I think, helps to paint a picture of God's holiness, his glory. Exodus 33, read verses 19 through 23. This is what it says. Excuse me. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy but he said you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live and the Lord said behold there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen see Moses asked to see God's face He wants to see God, and God says, that's not going to work out well for you. He says, but I tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in this rock, and I'll cover you, and as I pass by, you can see my back. And see, what you have to recall, if we keep reading, Moses has that encounter with God, and then he goes down the mountain, and his face is so bright that the people couldn't even look at him. And that's just him seeing God's back. That speaks to the holiness, the glory of God. You see, this... Speaks to his holy nature. He's so splendid in his perfection and his holiness that sinful men cannot look upon God or we die. You see, though we're made in the image of God, we are very different from God. As sinful human beings, we cannot dwell with God as we are. We cannot behold his glory or reside in the presence of God because he cannot reside with sin. His holiness prevents that. You see, in the presence of a holy creator, sinful men cannot stand. We're even reminded of this in the encounter in Isaiah chapter 6. You recall the prophet Isaiah has this vision and he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he's in the throne room of God. God's glory fills the temple and You have these angelic beings, and they're singing these songs of praise and adoration. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they're singing in unison unison, so passionately, so powerfully, that it shakes the foundations of the temple. Then Isaiah realizes, oh, shoot, I'm in the presence of this holy God. And he says, woe to me, I am undone. You see, when he's confronted with the holiness of God, he unravels because he's reminded of God's holiness, his splendor and his perfection, and then he's reminded of who he is, a sinful human being that cannot stand before a holy God. You see, when we understand and we encounter the holiness of God, we were reminded of our own unholiness. When we see him in his glory, we are confronted by our own unworthiness. See, God is holy. It's perfect. You know, we even see this play out in the New Testament. If you recall, encounter from Luke 5 where Peter and the other disciples, they're fishing and Jesus is on the shore and he's teaching and they haven't been able to catch anything all night. They've been out all night. And then Jesus goes to them and he says, hey, throw your nets out one more time, a little bit farther. Peter's like, man, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. So they throw their nets out and then they pull in a haul of fish that's so incredible, so large that they need help to haul it in and it begins to sink the boats. And then what does Peter say? say? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. See, Peter realized he was in the presence of the Holy One, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And he says, depart from me, Lord. I'm unworthy. I'm a sinful man. You think of the encounter where Jesus is uh, on on the sea with the disciples and he's asleep and the storm arises and they're panicking and they go to Jesus and say, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the the wind and the waves and everything is still perfectly. And then the text tells us that they're even more terrified now when they realize who they're in the boat with. This holy creator, the son of God. See, texts like this remind us of the holiness of God. They remind us of his nature, that God is one to be revered, to be worshipped, to be honored, not to be viewed casually. He's like no other God because there are no other gods, only him. See, God is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. And as a holy God, he must judge sin that brings us to point number three God is the righteous judge so God is the creator of all things he is holy and part of his holy character is his justice don't miss this you see the Bible clearly teaches us that God rightly exercises his judgment against sin in fact he has to he would be denying himself if he were to ignore sin and transgression You see, as much as the scriptures do teach us that God is a forgiving God, one who forgives sin and iniquity, the scriptures also remind us, like in Exodus 34, that he will by no means clear the guilty. See, God is a just and a righteous judge. Now think about that. What does a judge do? Well, judges make rulings, right? They make determinations. All right, so if you were in court and uh, you're guilty, there's a mountain of evidence. You truly transgressed the law and you're brought before this righteous judge. If he is indeed a righteous man, he is going to enact punishment on you. That is the judgment that he's going to pass. In fact, as human beings, if he didn't enact judgment, you would call him a wicked and corrupt judge. Amen. And God is perfect. He is the righteous judge. In all of his holiness and his justice, he must judge and punish sin. He has to look upon it with wrath, with righteous anger. You see, God, as the righteous judge, that means he gets to make determinations. He gets determined when we are living according to his purposes. I think this, again, is a simple concept. If God is the creator and he's made us to function a certain way according to his design, he gets to determine when we're not actually doing that. Right? I want you to think of an analogy. I'll give you a simple analogy. If you, I think everyone in here knows who this gentleman is. Elon Musk, right? He's the guy who created the Tesla, right? He designed that specifically to function a certain way guess what, if it starts doing something that it's not supposed to do, he's allowed to say, hey, you know what, it's not supposed to do that. If you're going down the road and suddenly your airbag deploys, not uh, after an accident, like you haven't had any contact, you didn't run into a pole or a tree, but your airbag just suddenly deploys, guess what, whoever designed that vehicle, they're allowed to say, it's not supposed to do that. It's not supposed to function that way. How much more does holy creator God get to determine when we are and when we are not living according to his design? We see this from the very beginning. Breaking God's design. If you go all the way back, right, to the beginning of what we just read in Genesis 1 and God places the man and woman in the garden and he gives dominion to rule the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, he gives dominion to just go out with authority. And he tells them, look, you can eat of any tree you want except this one. But they ignored God's command. They chose their own way. So God rightly judges their disobedience and their rebellion. They'd broken his command. They'd gone against his design. They'd rebelled against his will for their life and the way they should live. So he must enact his justice. You see, when we study the Old Testament specifically, you see that God calls his people to live a particular way. He tells them over and over again, if you're going to be my people, holy and set apart, holy like I'm holy, you need to live according to my statutes, according to my commands, don't forget my word. He tells them that over and over and over again. But the people rebel. So what do we see? That they wander in the wilderness. Some of them die. But then some of them actually make it to the promised land. then they rebel against God. They forget God. They break his design. They're not living for his divine purposes. And what happens? Some of them are captured. They're taken into uh, captivity. They're taken into exile. We even see, if you were here with us, I guess, last year, year before, when we went through the book of Amos, you even see God's judgment against the surrounding nations for their sin and their rebellion. Again, I think the whole point is the same, that God is the judge of his creation, and he has the right to be the judge of his creation. Even the slightest deviation from what God calls us to is sin and must be judged. Now, why is that significant? Because even as we think about topics that are at the forefront of our minds, at the forefront of conversations here in 2023, even the slightest deviations are sinful, So if God says, I've made them male and female, then they must be male and female. For us to even change that even a little bit, to say, well, yeah, I think God made a mistake. I should actually be this. That's sin, and that is to be judged. God gets to determine male, female, gender, sexuality, marriage, parenting, children, all of these other issues. Again, it must begin with the proper theology of God, the holy creator and the righteous judge. See, if we look at verses like Isaiah 33, verse 22, it says, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. Or Ezekiel 33:20. this is a good one. It says, yet you say the way of the Lord is not right. How many of us say that? Yeah, I know the the Lord's way, but that's just not right. It doesn't fit for me. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not right. And this is God's response. Oh, house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. I will judge each of you according to his ways. Even when we get to the New Testament, we look at the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He even points forward to the judgment that is to come and his own role in that divine judgment. John chapter 5, verses 22 and 27, it says this, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Or John chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says this, You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it. But I am the Father who sent me. Even if we look at passages like Matthew 25, you see Jesus warns his hearers of the coming judgment of God and what will happen when Christ returns in all of his glory and that he will take the sheep and sit them on the right side and then he'll take the goats and sit them on the left side and that's just a reminder, a harsh, sobering reminder of the judgment that is to come, the final judgment that awaits all of humanity. You see, Jesus reminds us through verses like these that the judgment of God will be executed rightly through him. See, Jesus is acting in accordance to the will of God the Father. Therefore, his judgment is just and true. You see, Jesus, just as he comes to bring salvation, he also comes to bring a sword to divide, to execute the judgment of God. And again, it's all in, uh, consist- It's all consistent with the character of God. You see, God cannot in his perfection and holiness ignore transgression. He can't look upon it and not punish it. Habakkuk 1.3 says this about God. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Here's the reality. We've all sinned and transgressed God's word. We've all in some form or fashion rebelled against this great creator. We've transgressed his word. But here's the wonderful reality of the situation. The same one that judges you justifies you. The same one who judges us is the one that saves. And that's our final point, point number four for this morning, is that God is the great savior and redeemer. You see, God understands the desperate condition of his creation. He knows we've all chosen to seek our own way. But He's a loving God that desires relationship with his people. So what does God do? He looks upon our helpless state knowing we have no ability to save ourselves. And in his divine mercy and love, he provides a savior for his people. You see, we see this gospel promise, this good news, as early as Genesis 3 in the fall of mankind. See, after the man and the woman, they transgress God's word. They've broken his command. They sin against him. God promises to send one from the seed of the woman, this great serpent crusher. Let's look at Genesis 3, verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, this is a wonderful promise. This is the first proclamation of the gospel. This is the good news, but it takes us a little bit to get there, right? If you read the rest of the Old Testament, you see what happens. You know the story of Israel, and that God brings his people out of slavery in Egypt. What does he do? He first gives them priests, right? Priests who are to intercede between God and the people, but the priests are wicked and corrupt. And then he moves from priests, so he says, okay, now I'm going to give them judges to judge amongst the people. But unfortunately, the judges execute or show partiality, and so their judgment isn't executed rightly. Right? So then the people say, all right, well, we want this king. We want a king just like the rest of the nations. So God says, all right, give them what they want. He gives them kings. But the kings are corrupt. The kings are wicked. The kings are sin- sinful. And so what does God do? He then gives his prophets to the people. To bring the word of God to the nation of Israel, to call them to repent. But what do they do? They kill the prophets. And then the Old Testament closes. And there's years of silence. And then, praise God, the New Testament opens with this genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it's how we connect Genesis 3 and the promise of this serpent crusher. And we see this genealogy, and that serpent crusher is Jesus Christ. He's the one who's come to save his people. He is the great high priest. He is the king of kings. He is the righteous judge. He is the prophet, not to just bring the word of God to people, but he is the word of God made flesh. Come to save his people. You see, we are reminded that though God is this holy creator and this righteous judge, he also saves and redeems his people. See, the Bible tells us that there is one Savior. Isaiah 43, 11 says, I am the Lord, and there is no Savior but me. And that's a fairly simple concept for us to grasp. I believe there is only one Savior, right? But then we get to Luke chapter 2, and we see the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. What it tells tells us in Luke 2, it says, Fear not, behold, I bring to you good news, great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. What a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, God has saved his people through Jesus Christ. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's righteous. Yes, he's the creator of all things. And he will rightly judge the sin and rebellion of the world But he's also a loving savior that has provided salvation and redemption for his people. You see, Romans 3.26 tells us that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it's all because of Jesus. You see, in Christ, the justice, the wrath, the judgment of God has all been satisfied. You see, the righteous judge that cannot look upon sin without rightly punishing it, he has provided us a substitute, one that drank the cup of his wrath, one that took the punishment upon his shoulders, redeeming a people for himself. What a glorious reality that is this morning. I hope I'm not the only one excited about that. You see, God's role as Redeemer, as Savior, really highlights one of his most glorious attributes, and that's God's grace. You see, it is by grace that we have been saved, and it's all by his doing. Our justification is by the loving providence of this sovereign, holy creator. You see, his salvation is not a response to something that we've done as if we can somehow summon the grace of God. In fact, that would rebuke the very definition of grace. God has lovingly redeemed his people. That's an act of his love, his grace, his mercy. This is just a great reminder of who our God is. We're going to prepare to close our time this morning. Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, well, none of that's new information to me. I know all of that stuff know the gospel. I know who God is. I know what he like. I know what he's like. I know what he demands. So maybe that was just a review for you. Praise God. But sometimes the simplest truths, the simplest sermons can be the most impactful because sometimes we simply need to behold our God. Sometimes we simply need to be reminded of this gospel truth. We need to be reminded of the gracious gift, but even more so, we need to be reminded of the gracious gift giver. Who is our God? And hopefully this informs all that we say and do, every relationship, every pursuit, every vocation, every word, every deed. Would we be people who rightly understand the splendor and character of God? Would we never tire of seeing and beholding His glory? My hope and prayer is that we would see Him for who He is, in light of His holiness, His saving grace, in light of this beautiful gospel message. And that we would commit ourselves to living for His glory as men, as women, husbands, wives, parents, children, etc. That it would all be informed by this glorious God, who is created. Saved and redeemed us. Let's pray, Father God. We thank you, Lord, as we look up and see who you are, Father. Would we never lose focus of that great reality, Lord, that you've created us, that you've given us life? Your holy God who has an expectation for his creation, for his people to live for his glory. But we confess that we've sinned and we've transgressed your word time and time again. Lord, but we thank you that though you are the righteous judge, that your character is to save and to redeem. Thank you for that wonderful reality this morning. Lord, would we remember who you are as we leave this place today? And then, as we go home as men, as women, whether we're parents or not, whether we're spouses or not, in whatever areas of influence we have, in whatever relationships we have, we would leverage the truth of the gospel. We would remember that you are a holy God who's created us for a purpose, and we would live in light of that divine reality today. God, would you receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise that you are due. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.